Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Another week, another episode of the Recruitment Flex. So usually it's Shelly opening these shows, but I'm going to open this show up. And, and like Shelly always says, the most, the best compliments. So uh, <laughs> Shelly, I'm going to give you a compliment today because you're forcing me to, because I am. So Shelly, the talented and lovely <laughs> Shelly Billinghurst, my co-host. How's it going, Shelly? Oh, Serge, you just butchered that, man. You could have at least tried to sound genuine. Like, honest <laughs> to God, you could have tried. That's not in my vocabulary. I, I know, I know. My, it's that French-Canadian. Could you not put a little more of the French in there somehow? Like, be a little more sure. glowing or something? Oh, Shelly, you know how I feel about you. You know how I know. much I think you're the most amazing, well, not the Thanks. most, obviously my wife and my kids and the most amazing women in the yes. world, but you're close to it. So well, you're, you're really tight. Thanks. Weather is nice beautiful recovery. this week. Nice recovery, exactly. Serge. Yeah. Okay, good. Well done. Well done. Do Weather is beautiful in Calgary. <laughs> it is. And it's a perfect time. This I, I'm really excited about this subject because it's one that mm -hmm. I got to admit that I don't know a lot about. I know enough on the service. I mean, know enough yeah. to be dangerous, but I need to learn a lot more as a recruitment practitioner. So I think we have some amazing guests. So Shelly, go ahead. Let's introduce. Yes. Um, yeah. So today's episode, we're going to talk about recruitment and, and how diversity and inclusion needs to be part, like what is what do the recruitment professionals need to know? So um, I am so, so honored to introduce um, the lovely and talented Zora Halani. And she is the newly minted manager of diversity and inclusion with a company called BCI. Uh, prior to that, and where I know uh, Zora mostly from, was the 12 years that she spent as the manager of diversity and inclusion in the energy sector here in Calgary at a company called Husky. Um, she is also the co-founder of the Calgary Diversity and Inclusion Network and is the national leader for gender equality with the Network of Canada. So Zora, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank did you I get that here. all right? You did. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. And joining Zora, um, we have Michael back. And boy, um, Michael, I don't know if you remember, but we met back in the 2010s, I think. Yes, it was early. It was somewhere around 2010 or 2011. Um, but Michael is the is nationally and internationally recognized as a thought leader and a subject matter expert. He's a public speaker. He's founder and CEO of the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion, and drum roll, author of a book just out today, available on Amazon. Everybody, pick it up. Called Birds of All Feathers. Can't wait to read it. Can't say I've read it yet because it only came out today. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks so much, Shelley. It's great to yeah. be here. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome. So, um, are we going to dive right in here, Serge? Are you up or am I up? You're up. Well, let me start this off then. Um, so, Zora, I'm going to start with you. Um, how how did you? start your career in diversity inclusion like is this something you 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 know you're in university and you're like i'm going to dedicate my life to diversity and inclusion how <laughs> did wish. it start for you no i wish it uh it was a oh. topic of conversation during my university days uh but uh actually it's an area that i came to learn more about uh at one of my employers 
Um, and I'm so blessed that I did. Um, I was asked to be the master facilitator for their diversity and inclusion training. Um, and of course, I was keen and eager and new in my uh, HR career, so I jumped right on it. And it was a week-long train-the-trainer program that was more challenging and grueling than my two degrees combined. Um, And uh, the fire was lit. That was it. Um, And then um, I pursued any opportunity uh, that I had to pursue my learning around diversity and inclusion and really just built my career and have really made a niche for myself in this space. Um, And uh, so glad I made this choice. Wow. Wow, that's what a great story. Michael, chime in. How did it, like, how did you get a career? Did your career begin in this? Very, very similar, although I don't have an HR background. Um, when I was going to university, which of course was, you know, just before Confederation, um, <laughs> you know, we didn't have, this didn't exist. This wasn't yeah. a, a program that uh, existed. So I did my program in IT and I worked professionally in IT for uh, a lot of my career. Um, but I'd always done this, this sort of work off, off the side of my desk as a volunteer um, in various organizations. And then uh, I was with a, a, one of the Canada's large professional services firms. And mm-hmm. uh, um, I became one of the people that started the uh, employee resource group uh, for the LGBT population. And that sort of catapulted me to uh, a bit of a platform where um, I said to the head of HR at one point, you know, if we're serious about this diversity thing, we need full-time resources and I want the job. And uh, she sent me a way to write the business case to create a role. And I think honestly, just to get rid of me. Um, but I came back with a good business case and uh, they foolishly gave me the job. And I was in that role for seven years. And uh, then I've been here at CCDI now for almost eight. So 15 years in the field. And I, similar to Zara, like it's just a, it's a passion for me. It get, I get out of bed every day mm-hmm. and I love coming to work. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so tell us more about that. Like, is there, is there a moment that you went, you look back maybe whether it was corporately or, or with um, CCDI, um, how, how did you know that the work you were doing was making a difference? Like, is there, a, give us your, your like, man, I would, this, this was like, they got me for life now, right? Arrow through the heart. Yeah. Um, I, I think of one story that really, it still sticks with me to this day. Um, uh, one of my colleagues uh, uh, was, he was gay and South Asian and one day he said to me, you know, I stay at KPMG because of you. And I was thinking, okay, wait, he's about to totally crush on me. And no. Um, but what he said was, Why I stay he? because it's a, it's a place where I can be myself. Mm. And that was the moment where I was like, right, the work I do makes a difference. It, it's not, I'm not being Pollyanna about it. No. It changes people's lives no. um, because we spend so much time at work. Like it's a massive yeah. part of our life. It, it's really important then that we come to work and we feel like we can be ourselves and people will respect us and treat us well. Um, and that, that's that sort of moment that I just went, okay, I'm, 
This yeah. is it. This is my career. Yeah. I, I really like that point on being yourself. Uh, and I, I think that's something we're seeing as corporations have changed throughout the years. And we're, we're not only talking about diversity and inclusion, but being your true self at work. Zora, I'm curious on your end, as far as what's your thoughts on, on exactly that feeling from a lot of employees that do you feel that most employees feel can be themselves at work? Is that something that is still a major challenge? And if we focus maybe on North America on that, and what's your thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty loaded question. You know, for me, I think that every organization is at a different maturity and understanding around this work and lo- truly depends how much effort has been allocated to consciously do the work rather than expecting it to organically somehow happen off the side of the desk, like Michael spoke about earlier, um, because that that's just, you know, it, it can happen to some extent, but it's nowhere near as purposeful and will um, be uh, a differentiator for you as an organization um, unless you dedicate the resources and time um, like you would to safety, like you would to any kind of investment, um, uh, whatever right. the case might be. I, I think for me, um, that's what I have tried to really focus on um, in doing this work is um, if it is important, it needs to have the, the appropriate amount of time uh, resources allocated to it. As far as employees are concerned, I think, yeah, absolutely. I remember being being in the throes of this work for about six, seven years and, and having an employee at one of our events call me out and said, you know, yeah, we do some great work for, you know, for women, for visible minorities, for indigenous people, for for employees with disability. Where's the LGBTQ employee in all of this? And I remember um, going, yeah, you're right. You're right. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about it at all. And uh, so it's a bit of a gut punch. And, and you know, you, you realize, okay, yes, you're doing some great work, but if you have not acknowledged and uh, ensured that everyone, everyone can be part of this journey in some meaningful way, shape, or form, uh, they're not going to feel included. They're not going to have that experience that they can bring their whole self to, to work. So, you know, I, I think um, every organization, like I say, Serge, is going through its own um, space and, and maturity. and, and so much of that is driven by individuals going through their own journey in this work, right? Um, and so uh, it, it truly depends. Um, uh, but you hope that with the push that every employee makes and every leader makes, you're able to create that environment where they are able to be a part of themselves and bring their whole self um, to an organization and not feel that they have to censor um, really anything. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So do you have like your moment or was it, was it when, uh, are you saying that, you know, when somebody said to you like, well, what about this group? I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, no. when I hear you say that, that's kind of the, the, I mean, I could feel the panic cause I know how I would feel. It's like, like, how do you do it? Like how, yeah. how yeah, do I, you ensure that you don't miss somebody? Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, you know, Michael could probably speak to this as well. I think it's it's about ensuring that as you're building your work, you're you're thinking about from the vantage point of inclusion. And it's not about, you know, gender work isn't about women. It's it's about men and women. You know, if you don't engage that majority, you 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 lose the battle um, mm-hmm. completely. Um, but for me, I think the moment was was really simple. We host uh, council meetings 
twice a year where we brought our council together, about 40 some odd people. And I remember one of them, field employee, he's an operator. He's one of the council members that signed on. He had been on the council for about a year. I think we had to twist his arm to be on the council. I think there wasn't anybody interested in the area that wanted to be on there. So I think the leaders um, recommended him and, and you know, kind of nudged him along. And, and then he came along on the journey. And so he was kind of on the edges. And I remember after being on the council for about a year to 18 months at one of the council me- meetings, he pulls me aside and he says, you know, I didn't believe in any of this. I just did it because my leader told me to. I get it now. I get it now. And I'm so glad that you brought me on and that you've given me this opportunity to learn and understand this work from a completely different vantage point. And I'm changed for life. And you get that kind of a comment. and, And it's, I can think of multiple comments, multiple situations over the course of my career where I've had one-on-one employees come and talk to me a little bit about what this has meant for them. And that's where this becomes real. You're so caught up in kind of building the strategy, working with the executives and doing all the work that needs to happen. But it's it's the, those circumstances, those situations that bring it down to home and continue to fuel me um, to do this work. And, and I will, for the rest of my life, um, continue to be dedicated to this work because of those kinds of instances. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, you know, I, uh, on the flip side of that, Zora, like, do you think there's, there's a wrong way? Like, what do you see out there as far as, you know, if our listeners, if you wanted to say, you know, here's what not to do. Michael and I are laughing because <laughs> I think Why? We, we, we've done it ourselves. So sure, okay. let's talk about our okay. mistakes. I think, uh, you know, one of the worst things you can do, and I've done it, is, um, one and done. One and done. Let's do a training yeah. session on this. Done. Poof, people are changed. Poof, values are changing. Behaviors are changing. Yeah, that's that's probably one of the worst ways you can approach this work. I think people place so much emphasis on training sessions and training programs mm-hmm. without building the system that fuels the way we show up the way that we are rewarded, the way that we monitor performance and and provide feedback around performance. And, and, uh, you know, if we don't look at the underlying factors that lead to the behaviors that show up in the organization, we completely miss that mark. You think a, you know, one day training session, and you're lucky if you can get a one day training session, people think, oh, two hours, boom, done. Um, And and, uh, it's it's probably one of the worst things you can do for yourself. And and if that's where your head is, don't do it. Just don't do it. Mm -hmm. Save yourself the money. um, And and at least you you won't have to worry about um, facing the the pitfalls uh, that can come out of a a two-hour training session. So I think Michael could probably speak to some some of this work as well, because we've seen it so much and done it ourselves, like we say. Yeah, Please I chime think, in, yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Tell us. I think the, the biggest uh, the biggest mistake I see is thinking of diversity as a program, mm-hmm. and I put yeah. that in air quotes. That it is something that sits off on its own, uh, or it's part of HR, you know. And uh, I see that as as problematic for a couple of reasons. One, if there is some sort of economic downturn let's say hypothetically there's a massive pandemic and unemployment hits 15%. Um, hypothetically. Yeah. It just hypothetically. Mm-hmm. And, and we're looking for savings all over the place. Well, if your 
diversity and inclusion program, in air quotes, is going to be beside your health and medical or health and dental program, guess what's going to get cut first? Diversity and inclusion needs to layer over the organization. Everything you do, not just the people part, that's a big part of it, but it needs to layer over your marketing and communications, your suppliers, your facilities, your IT. It's, it, it, it touches every aspect of what organizations do. And a big downfall is where people see it as a program, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a culture shift. Mm -hmm. How do you start? Sorry, Serge. Uh, you go. You go, Serge. You've been really quiet today. I don't know what's going on with you. Yeah, I'm just being quiet. No, I'm just thinking as far as um, you mentioned that that is a challenge and I completely agree with you. If you're creating a program, it won't stay in the long run. You basically have to build it as part of your culture. But putting that in sense, have you seen, do you have any um, any examples or anything you could think of of a company you've seen a massive transformation from where they were and they basically implement as part of their culture and where they are now anything you relate to anything you can remember in that sense and how did they do it like what were the essential ingredients yeah, yeah. it's work it's work um yeah one immediately comes to mind um this is a large uh multinational um engineering firm and um, there, it started with a business case. Um, they wrote the business case. What it, and, and the business case is the why. Why diversity and inclusion? Why does it matter? And then they conducted an assessment. We actually did the assessment for them, where we went in and we just looked behind every curtain there was. We collected a lot of data. We asked a lot of questions. Um, and from that, we were able to identify some of the key issues, some of the problem areas. And we then uh, wrote a strategy to help them uh, address some of the issues that were found. And they subsequently went on and implemented that strategy. And then they measured their progress. Um, and it's it's a simple, you know, five-step process. Um, simple but complex. Simple but a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if you're affecting, if you're, if you're expecting it to change overnight, it won't. It's just you're fighting against human nature. Mm -hmm. The brain will take the path of least resistance, whether it's the right path or not. And the result for this one engineering firm was that they started to see change. They started to see retention of women and people of color go up. They started to see uh, promotions occur uh, to the point where they now have near gender parity in leadership positions in the organization, which in, a, in an engineering world is unheard of. Yeah, um, not in banking, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah. they started to see the change happen. Mm -hmm. And of course, then the snowball is going down the hill because they see that the work produces the results and the results ultimately produce a better organization, higher levels of engagement, higher levels of productivity, and ultimately higher levels of profitability. Mm -hmm. So you got to get the snowball to the top of the hill and then push it over. And then it goes downhill and it, it, it really does start to become 
uh, sort of a, a self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. This is work. It is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, you, that's the one thing you got to be prepared to roll up your sleeves and do the work. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned is measuring success and coming from a background that I, I try to measure everything as far sure. as how my process is working. And so you mentioned a couple of things there, obviously at the end of the day, the goal is to be more profitable. So, um, but, and then basically you take a step back and how it gets to it, but is profitability or even some of the, um, the metrics you mentioned as far as gender part is that the end goal like what is the end goal as far as measuring success because uh, sometimes like in marketing we talk about you shouldn't have to measure everything nothing not everything needs to be a kpi i'm assuming it's the same in diversity and inclusion curious on your thoughts on that michael yeah i'm uh, i come from a, a, a data background so <laughs> Um, you, you need the proof point to actually do anything. And yeah. you have to measure so that you know when you've been successful. Yeah. Um, I think profitability in the for-profit world, profitability is actually the only metric that really matters. How you get to profitability, that's a different conversation. Mm. Um, and it's not as simple as you know, cut your costs, work your people to death, sell more. That, that is a terrible way to actually become profitable. Um, but there are lots of things in the diversity and inclusion sphere that you can measure to understand if it's having the intended impact. And because I come from this data-driven background, I look at it and say, well, if it doesn't have, if we can't measure that progress, if we can't measure that impact and show the progress, why are we doing it? And I'll give you an example. So uh, in a previous lifetime, um, we get sponsorship requests all the time. This is before I ran a charity. Um, I always laugh when someone asks me to sponsor something. Anyway, um, so we would get sponsorship requests from film festivals. And I would look at them and go, okay, what's the data? And they would show me their audience data none of these people were really looking for an audit or tax advice when they're watching a movie. So I wouldn't sponsor them because there wasn't a direct benefit to us as an organization. And that's not to say they're, they're not a good organization. They're not valuable, but it's, you know, the, 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 Sorry, the point I'm trying to make is that diversity and inclusion is not corporate social responsibility. Mm. It's, you know, corporate social responsibility is about giving money away and that's someone mm-hmm. else's job. Yeah. Um, DNI is about improving performance. And so if you are, if you're not measuring it, how do you know if you've been successful? Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And I think that's interesting in that sense, because uh, to get buy-in within the organization, and, and, and honestly, you shouldn't have to get buy-in, but it's still a reality. Uh, so you do need to have hard data that shows that this will impact the organization positively. And there is a lot of research out there that shows that uh, a diverse team actually performs way better than 
a, a really straight laid or basically a, a single team in that sense. So um, I, I completely agree with that. So, Zora, what I'm um, obviously a lot of our audience is in recruitment uh, and a lot of the times, so diversity and inclusion, and I think to your earlier point, Michael, is sometimes just falls into HR uh, and then there's not a lot, there's, there's some things done, but not enough. Recruitment is never really involved. And I think that has changed and we're starting to see that change dramatically. And when I'm saying like even last couple of months, so I'll give you an example. Um, so I, I lead a recruitment team three months ago. I have the president of my company saying, or two months ago when black lives matters really with the protest came to me, what are we doing when we're hiring for diversity and inclusion? And thankfully, um, this is always on top of my mind, I've already set some process in place so we can actually, diversity and inclusion is important. One of them is uh, unbiased. We, we just did some training a month before on unconscious bias. I think that's one step. We have a lot of people doing interviews. We all have different unconscious bias that we might not be aware. The other step that I put in is we've actually removed the name from applicants um, and we leverage an AI technology that actually ranks the candidate based on the technology, based on the job description in their resume to see if it's a fit to try to eliminate some of that bias as well. We also do simple stuff like we run our job description through what we call a gender decoder, which mm -hmm. basically tells us if it's heavy masculine or feminine uh, then we make the adjustments because as a software company we try to hire across the board so but putting all of that in context um, recruitment is part of the equation but where do you see recruitment how can recruitment change their game to do a better job on diversity and inclusion when it comes to hiring yeah yeah it's a great question I, I think you know doing this work um, and being part of HR in, in previous in most of my DNI roles and, and, and part of my career, you know, the role that talent acquisition or recruitment plays has always been critical, just like any other component of the talent life cycle. And I think you have to think about it that way, very similar to what Michael spoke about. Um, you know, this isn't a program, this is a systematic way of unpacking all of our HR's policies, programs, systems. And, and looking at them from a DNI lens. And so for an organization that is growing or maintaining their workforce, which I can understand in the Canadian context, given what we're going through, maybe not a lot of companies are in that position, but those that are uh, continuing to grow or at least maintain their workforce, recruitment becomes an important element uh, of, the, of the bigger picture, just the same as talent management becomes a part of the picture how we go about positioning our brand as an organization that comes hand in hand with what talent acquisition does what recruitment does so so are you portraying a picture that actually makes sense i remember michael calling us out uh in, in one of the sessions i attended pulled up our website and, and said okay well here you go let's take a look at this where are the people um and, and so simple things like that how are you showing up um out in the talent pool as an organization that is about its people and, and trying to, to be differenti trying to differentiate itself from, from the rest of the competitors. Um, yeah, there are some uh, systematic ways, similar to what Sergio spoke about, that you can implement as a way to go about uh, taking bias out of the recruitment process. Um, but, but I think there are other things as well, like in, in my experience, 
um, having worked as a business partner as well as a DNI manager, um, there's a role that hiring um, at, at, that recruiters play in, in this puzzle. Um, and the way they go about influencing one interview at a time with their hiring managers, I, I don't think we should shortchange the power of that. So I think mm. there's a lot to be done um, in enabling the entire HR team to be the force behind DNI work, along with the rest of the organization. But you can't lose sight of the fact that the HR team plays a critical role. So in where it comes to recruitment, these are the individuals that are, that are the faces of our company. So it, are those faces diverse themselves? Um, you know, what kind of education and learning are they doing to personally understand around DNI and and what role their work plays in that entire story? How are they connected to that? And then influencing the the hiring leaders, like I say, one interview at a time, and that's what it takes. That's why this work takes so long, like Michael spoke about. You can't do this off the side of your desk, and it's not something that will that will just materialize, uh, you know, after 18 months of putting a strategy into place. Um, so I, I think those are some of the ways where recruitment really is is a critical factor. And, and I know in my career, and it continues to be in, in the current organization, playing a critical factor in how we show up as an organization in our brand, as well as what the recruitment team itself is doing to educate themselves around bias and de-biasing some of our processes and, and actually using data as a way to see who are we attracting? Who's getting cut off at what point in our process? And why is that happening? Not, oh, well, they're not applying. So I guess they don't exist. No, that's not the answer. Why aren't they applying? And, and the recruitment team is critical in asking those tough questions and helping leaders move past that. Well, they don't exist. That's why they don't apply. Can I come back to something you said, Serge? Just yes, to, absolutely. Just to pick on you. There's a couple of things you said that, that jumped out for me. And I, I think it's important for your listeners to, to think about them differently. So one is the name blind hiring. Um, and this has become a thing that everyone's trying to find the perfect recruiting process. And we think, okay, we'll take the name off because that will eliminate the bias. There's lots of things on a person's resume that can tell us things about them. What school they went to. Um, what year they graduated, if they were involved in a particular club um, or, or a particular activity or social organization, et cetera, we can, those biases can, can come out in the worst kind of way. Um, so it's important that we not rely on that. I personally do not support name blind hiring, believe it or not. Mm. And that's because <clears throat> if I'm, if you, you know, I get an interview. And when I walk through the door, if I'm black, I'm still black when I come through the door. And so if you're racist against black people, I don't have any hope. And worse, you just got my hopes up. Yeah. Um, so name blind hiring, I think it, 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 I think it's an ideal, but I think in execution, it falls down. And I think ultimately what we should be dealing with is the bias that's the problem. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I'd be careful about is AI and this is said as somebody who spent most of his professional career working in technology. Um, I always think about the story from Amazon and I'm yeah. not sure if yeah. you're familiar, but they created they're an AI. Yeah. Yes. So they created this AI to screen candidates only to find that the AI was only screening in men. Yes. And yeah. it was because it was AI, exactly. <laughs> AI is computers don't have bias, but computers also don't learn on their own. 
they're taught. Just as bias is taught to children, bias can be taught to a computer. And so I, I think it's also important to uh, have an awareness about um, the potential that a you know an AMI may be eliminating candidates that really do have the skills you're looking for. Um, it depends on how they submit their data. I mean, there's so much there uh, that it potentially screens out really good candidates. Yeah, and I, I agree with both of your points. And just to clarify, so the blind hiring and how we use it, we do not use, and I, your point was 100%, when the person walks in and say they're black, well, it's it's not going to change anything in the sense of if someone interviewing them is racist, is it doesn't put them ahead of the game. But the way we leverage it is, is a little bit of a difference. So when we're running them through AI, and I'll, I'll go through that as well initially, we don't have the name because then it gives us basically a ranking and we decide from there, okay, the top ranking candidates based on the criteria are moving next steps. Then the name appears. Um, like we basically don't go through the whole process through a blind hiring pro because I agree with you on, on that yeah. point. On AI, we always use the Amazon example. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a really good example, but also it's an example of three years ago as well. And, and to your point, technology learns as we go along and we feed it the right information that we need. So you have to be extremely, extremely careful. Um, and I'm very fortunate to work for a technology company. And this is something we're very well aware of how we train our systems. Uh, it's all about the amount of data that you leverage. But what I'm hoping, like my end goal is, as resumes come true, the biggest challenge I've seen in is if they see names that are potentially non-Canadian or sound different, there's a lot of recruiters, even though we've trained them, will automatically knock them out saying, well, they probably have an accent and the hiring manager doesn't want an accent, which is a different conversation that you need to have. You need to have those serious conversations uh, with your hiring managers in that end. But it's a very slippery slope. Uh, I 100% agree. But I still think it can be done in a way that avoids that. And the blind hiring is... I, I, I really, at one point it's going to be obvious who someone is. So yes, um, what I'm absolutely. trying to do is avoid it at the start, which I think is where that initial step, the resume comes in for a recruiter. They have a hundred resumes. We want them to eliminate the step of, Oh, well, these names are probably not good because, uh, and just eliminating those. So those, that's what I meant by that, but I'm sure. exactly. The same yeah. So, so in your experience, uh, Michael, I mean, I know for me, um, something that I talk about a ton was what Serge also touched on with the software is where you actually start paying attention to how you've written your job ads. Because, you know, like we, you were saying a second ago, Zora, is like, they don't even apply. Well, because what, there's nobody out there? No, it's, it's, it can be, I believe, and I've always believed this, and I know Serge is proving it out where how the job ad is written, um, for the most part, I believe job ads were written by lawyers or by HR people. And, you know, God bless our, our friends in HR, but they don't know the first thing about candidate attraction or trying to ensure that what you write is actually something attractive, right? They're worried about the roles and responsibilities. And um, I've seen job ads with you know, 50 bullet points on them of what 
somebody must ha- must be able to do, right? Um, so, I mean, I think it, it sounds simple, but I know it's not easy. It's not for recruiters to take a real hard look at how they write job ads. Mm-hmm. That's that's Shelley's soapbox. I shall step down now and allow you, Zora. Please step up. What are do you have any any simple things or? I don't think any of it's simple. I think it must be intentional is really the message I'm getting from both of you. But things that, what can recruiters do today? What can, what is the maybe one simple thing that either talent acquisition leaders or recruiters can do? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's going to sound simplistic, but it's not, is um, go on your own personal journey. <laughs> Learn about diversity and inclusion. Learn about where you are as a person, your bias, because you have it, and and how that shows up for you. I think if you can just start with yourself as an individual, you will go much farther because this journey will then connect you in a much more meaningful way than just some system or some leader telling you that that's what we need to do. Um, again, it may sound simplistic, but but to me, I feel like if uh, as a DNI professional, what I've tried to do is if we can at least spark that for every individual that is responsible for a talent component or talent process, um, that they can start looking at how they show up in their work, what they are doing. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. will be so much more able to make the change that needs to happen with our systems, policies, and processes than I ever will be able to. But we need to start with that individual that that manages that those elements that actually applies those um, and, and giving them the intelligence around how it's showing up the intention versus impact that Michael's talked about um, that that journey begins with the individual learning a little bit about diversity and inclusion, how bias shows up in talent practices and, and question like Michael just did, you know, not everything cool, fun thing that you hear out there is the right way to go about doing things. I mean, I would get tapped for all sorts of ideas, including some of the ones we've spoken spoken about. But for me, what was missing in a lot of pictures is where's the culture behind this? What are the behaviors that leaders are being promoted for mm-hmm. uh, or being allowed to permit to, to display? That's where all of this ends up being. So for me, a lot of this work ends up being around personal journey and purposeful leadership that each one of us can take in order to do this work. Tactically speaking, yeah, take, you know, if, if most of us can't take a look, uh, an unbiased look at our systems and processes, bring somebody in, have them go through your systems, policies, processes, and have them point out some of the things to you, like the way Michael did uh, for us, you know, and, and speak to and learn a little bit about how this is being viewed. So Shelly, with your, mar- you know, being able to market a role and so on and so forth, you will see an ad differently than the way that I would as an HR professional mm-hmm. putting it together. So. leverage that and and learn how you can do your work a little bit differently. Um, And yeah, there might be some cool tools and and resources that you can, you can tap into. uh, But some of this is just hard work, just, you know, and and you you just need to start the journey there. So Mm -hmm. forgive me if I'm not being specific, but honestly, after 12 years of doing this work, that's what becomes really clear is if every individual that owns the talent process, one at a time. I love it. I love it. You got to own it. Look in the mirror. Yeah. You can only affect that one person in front of you right now. Yeah. Um, over to you, Michael. What are your, what's one thing that recruiters can do today differently? Uh, Start doing. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to 
say two because I'm that guy. And let's say my book came out today. I'm allowed yeah. to. Okay. Um, one is don't boil the ocean. Um, start small, do little things like the gender decoder for running your job descriptions through. And there's several out there. There's some free and some that you have to pay for. Um, that's a great start. Um, just start somewhere. I assure you, if you do nothing, nothing will occur. Um, so that's why. Yes, it's oh. deep, isn't it? It's in my book. Um, <laughs> Front cover. <laughs> it's, that's actually all the book says. Just do nothing, and nothing will occur. The end. Um, you have to. You have to start somewhere and do uh, those little things. Um, and the other thing I would say is you're going to have to do things differently. Recruiters don't love this. And with all due respect to recruiters, some of my closest friends are recruiters. You're going to have to change the process. You're going to have to figure out different ways, um, like screening through an applicant tracking system has notorious problems with it because if you're new to Canada, you have no idea what a keyword is. That is not a globally understood concept. So you have to be willing to try different things. Mm -hmm. Going to events, mm -hmm. not insisting that everyone just apply online. We can be, sometimes we have to go a bit old school. Mm -hmm. Doing informational interviews. Um, you know, working with immigrant serving agencies to help them understand what you need, what kind of candidates you're looking for. Um, it, it's, it is outside of the normal quote unquote process uh, that recruiters go through on a day-to-day -day basis, but you have to diversify the talent pool, the people that are applying for the jobs, mm -hmm. so that the people getting hired are diverse. And then you have to hand it off to the internal people who make sure that the environment is inclusive. But that's not your department, so let someone else do that. <laughs> it's all part of the process, though. It's all mm -hmm. part of the if we you bring in really good candidates from a diverse uh, skill set and background, and then they come in and get a really bad experience. That's yeah. that's going to be bad for your whole attraction strategy as well. Absolutely. It, it's basically, I think the point that you made and both of you and I completely agree, and this is hard for recruiters, is we want to do everything at once. We want to bring it from A to, to Z in one shot. And I, I think that's the one thing that's going to stand out from this conversation is like, mm -hmm. okay, one thing at a time to mm -hmm. move needle to the next step. So I, I appreciate that on that end. I always um, describe this. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was no, just no, going to say... I describe this as the incremental revolution. You just got to take one step at a time and just keep plodding along. Slow and steady will win the race. If you try to race to the end, you're, you're going to fail. And, and I think that's going to be a challenge for a lot of us in the recruitment industry. Sure. We want to change. In one way, like we, our whole industry doesn't um, adapt really quickly, but this is something that... Yeah. I think most of us want to want to change because we want to make a difference in our organization. We feel we're important in the sense of the people we bring in will help that change. But uh, so there's a couple of things you've mentioned about your book and we want to bring you what? back. What? Did I mention my book? A couple of times. 
<laughs> we want Hi, to bring you really? back, Michael. Perfect. Oh, Great. Shamelessly. Shamelessly. <laughs> no, that's the that's the point. That is the point. You know, so many talent acquisition people wouldn't even know. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we know? Like, this is the whole point of why Serge and I started the recruitment flex was to share knowledge, right? So shamelessly self-promote away. <laughs> there is a whole no. chapter on talent attraction. Really? Perfect. Because hey, we're gonna bring you that. back on to go through your book after we've read it, which uh Obviously, I haven't read it yet, but can you leave us with, you've left us with a lot of pearls of wisdom, mm-hmm. but from your book, anything else that you're focused on the book, anything that uh, our listeners are giving them a reason that they should go buy it right now on Amazon, buy it on Kindle? Um, yeah, so I, I would say um, I wrote the book, so I've been doing this work for 15 years. Uh, and I know you can't tell to look at me because I look like I'm, so I'm 20. Youthful. Yes. So youthful, yes. So youthful, right? <laughs> I'm just going to pull the skin My back a little. I'll just do that. Um, in 15 years, I've read a lot of books on diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And I would say that there's two buckets that they fall into. One is very academic. And the other is very self-serving. Written by consultants that are trying to sell their work. So in setting out to write this book, I said, I'm not going to be either. It's written in very plain language. It's written, it's funny. Um, I made sure that people laugh. In fact, I laugh at some of the jokes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that means they're not funny, but anyway, um, I, uh, and it's also a bit of a how to guide. Um, so I don't keep the secrets. I say, these are the things you should do. Um, and, I, I did that intentionally so that a small business owner, an entrepreneur, a people manager can pick up the book and get their brain around, wrapped around what is a really complex topic. Mm-hmm. But I sort of, pardon the expression, but I dumb it down a bit so that anybody can read this and go, right, here are the steps I'm going to take. Awesome. Have you read it yet, Zora? No, Not yet. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> it came out today. Literally, it has been no, available well, for like might, eight hours. I would have had oh, a no, secret. Well, I, uh, I you would yeah, give her an yeah. advanced copy. Like what's? Yes, Michael. So you, you get to write a review. That's why it was that. Yeah. Where's oh, my copy? <laughs> Michael, you dropped the ball yeah. there. What? It's I'm in sorry. the mail. You're, you're breaking mail. up. I can't right. quite hear you. What? What? Oh. Awkward. Bad connection here. Oh, listen, this has been so fabulous. Michael, tell, tell our listeners, um, where can we find you? We know we can find the book on Amazon. You can, you can find me and everything about me at michaelbach.com. Yep. And everything about the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion at ccdi.ca. Awesome. Thank you. And Zora? Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Uh, (laughs) Search me out. I'm happy to have a a quick chat. I, I'm doing a lot of that uh, given the circumstances we're going through and, mm-hmm. and anybody that is interested in talking a little bit about how this practically gets applied, I'm happy to share my thoughts. Yeah, you're very busy out in the community and thank you so much. Um, this has been awesome. Um, yes, Michael, we reserve the right to uh, to have you on once Serge and I have had a chance to read the book. So I will uh, happily come back. Yes. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So it I'm going to order it on Amazon right now. now. <laughs> so, 
oh right yeah maybe this a couple is the of guy days. that reads a book in a, in two days right and and i'm like <laughs> like two weeks later i'm like anyways that's awesome thank you so much for taking time out of your day for um for sharing your knowledge and your insights with our listeners zora thank you so much and uh, good luck in your your move because I understand you. you are relocating. I am. I am somewhere beautiful where there's oxygen in the air. Yeah, <laughs> ocean breezes. Yes. Oh, you're so lucky. Well, awesome. thanks, Shelly and Serge, for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access.